I'll try to get right into it. There's a good possibility that I am going to cry. Uh, I'm an emotional Neanderthal sometimes. My wife reminds me of that. Um, uh, I'm, you, I've been accused a lot of speaking with conviction and passion, and so I'm probably going to do that as well. And given the situation that we faced over the last year and a half, um, I feel particularly compelled uh, to share the story uh, and how I've been blessed and how we've been blessed. And so to just give you one second, I'm trying to set a timer so I don't bother you all um, with, but yeah, I'm going to go as God, as God feels and, and leads me, okay? So um, I do want you to know I take this very serious, and uh, I've done a lot of public speaking over my time. Uh, usually it's around young humans and young men, uh, particularly in the football or track and field area, and so uh, the audience is, I'm a little bit more attuned to that audience because I'm a silly, dumb boy. Um, but I've, I've tried really hard to make sure that I um, present a message here that will resonate. And the thing that I've done for about the last five or six weeks is just prayed that God will use me to deliver a word that at least one person will take away from today. And, and that's all I can really ask for. And if he does that, and if we accomplish that, then it's been a beautiful thing. Uh, if I mess up or I don't deliver a message, that's on me. That's where I've probably humanized it or thought too much about it, and that's not on God. And so I just kind of want to put that out as a disclaimer. Um, so uh, as Austin referenced, cancer, uh, I think we're all pretty familiar with that, so I'll give you a little history as to who I am, where I'm about. I'm an Ellettsville boy, born in, and raised in Bloomington, Indiana, have uh, been here all my life, went to Edgewood High School, graduated from Edgewood High School, um, at a certain point after a career in restaurants, uh, I felt like I was missing being a, a father. So I really wanted to be a father uh, more full-time to my kids. And uh, getting back into the school or getting into the school allowed me to do that. Kept me in, in line with their schedule. And it wasn't long thereafter that my wife, Sarah, who's here with me, um, was able to become my quote-unquote sugar mama. And so, you know... <laughs> All the rumors that you've heard about teachers, um, you know, they deal with a lot, they go through a lot, they don't make a lot of money, right? And so we knew we were never going to get rich with me being in in an um, education setting, uh, but we knew that it was fulfilling a lot of passions of mine and allowing me to be a better father, which was ultimately our goal. And so uh, years progress. I really enjoy the school. I keep finding little niches of, of young humans that I can impact, get into coaching, and, and really just kind of go from there and really truly feel like God has placed me here to impact um, kids at risk. Kids that, um, I mean, I think all of our kids, all of our young humans, all of us as adults face obstacles every day. Um, and some of our obstacles are really large some of our obstacles are really small. And so as adults, usually we're better equipped to handle those things, and uh, our young humans are not. And so I just feel a strong conviction to spend time with them and to invest in them and to give to them. And a lot of times people say, how do you have the patience for that? And I could never really explain it until recently, and I think, well, my goodness, <laughs> if I think back on all of the trials and tribulations that I've put God through, and he can continue to be patient with me, how can I not extend that same grace to younger people, younger humans, right? Because uh, Lord knows I've had a lot of grace extended in my life, okay? So education becomes a big part of our life. I was at Edgewood for almost 13 years, um, really enjoyed my time there, uh, but it got to a point where things were stale, um, and, you know, there is such a thing as doing good work, but doing it in a place where you no longer feel like you're supposed to be. So my wife and I uh, had been talking, you know, do I leave? I don't want to leave. This is my town. This is my community. These are my kids. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough years ago to run an upward uh, program, Upward Youth League, which is a, a Christian-based organization in which we introduce, you know, kids to... Um, flag football, cheerleading, and basketball. And so we kind of con the kids into thinking that they're playing basketball and football. But really, what we're trying to do is we're trying to plant seeds, 
right? And, and so that, you know, hopefully sometime down the road, we'll be able to see those seeds come to fruition. And so for about a decade, we did that. And we, we led that program, and it started with just me as a coach, and then a year into it, oh, hey, we need a program director, and yeah, sure, why not? Now, that's an example, and I can talk about that one day, too, of, of how God can use a broken, a broken, broken man to lead a program and to, to lead things for him, even when you're not perfect, okay? Because we weren't, at that time, attending a church. Um, you could say that we were believers, but there was not a lot of daily practice in that belief, okay? Um, I think a term that I'll use a couple times throughout is sleepwalking, okay? I was sleepwalking, all right? So we've got this program. So I've seen kids from the time that they're four, five, six years old. And the beautiful thing for me is I got to go to the high school. I, I started seeing these kids come back through as now young adults, right? And 15 and 16 and 17-year-old young men and young women. And so it was a really satisfying and fulfilling thing for me to have that connection with them. I got to see them when I was younger or when they were younger, and now I get to kind of see that full circle. And so just filled my meter and, and, and really motivated me and kept me going and really felt like this is what I'm supposed to do. And so, yeah, filled with a lot of positivity. Uh, always try to encourage, you know, the young humans to find that next step, whatever that next goal is, let's work towards it. What can we do to get there? Yes, we're gonna face some adversity and some obstacles. And so just at some point um, over the years, I, I started, and I, it was not intentional, but I just started saying I'm thankful for the day. And you know, a lot of times, it, um, I think where it started for me is a lot of times I would say, oh, live in the dream. And then a lot of times I'm like, I'm not living the dream, this is not, this is, <laughs> If this is a, nah, this is not a good dream. Is this a, this might be a nightmare, right? Um, and so I, I didn't feel comfortable saying living the dream because it wasn't true. It wasn't truthful. I didn't really feel that. And so it kind of morphed into this thankful for the day. And uh, so I would share that with the kids. Yeah, you're having a bad time right now. Um, and, and Mr. Tucker knows as well, right? We see kids at their absolute best and we see kids at their absolute worst, right? And uh, we have a lot of kids in our community that are dealing with a lot of stuff, a lot of heavy stuff. And um, so I know that you're dealing with this, but you know, if you, if you look, you can find one reason to be thankful. You can find something to be thankful for. And that kind of just became our, our cry. And that was kind of how we would approach the days and the weeks and um, you know, looking for a reason to be thankful. And so, Edgewood was great, uh, but we really felt like our time there was nearing. I was really struggling with that. And one night in, a, in our bedroom, a conversation we were having, and my wife said, babe, kids are going to need Michael Doring to love on them no matter where you're at. And it's fantastic that it's at Edgewood right now, but if it's somewhere else, that's going to be okay. And my wife has... There was, I don't think in her brain she was having this epiphany moment where she was delivering these just magical words to me. She was just being a wonderful wife and listening and responding. And that broke me down. I, I stopped me in my tracks and I sat down on the step in our bedroom and I started crying. And I thought, well, that's a really simple thing to say that has so much power. And she's right. Doesn't matter where I go. And so that was the okay for me to think about being in education, not in my community, not at Edgewood High School. Like I said, it's the place I graduated from. It's where we've raised our boys. Our boys went to Edgewood schools. I'm red and black. I'm Mustang through and through. It, it, there's not a lot of people that are probably more of a Mustang than I am. Um, but we came to that realization it was time for me to go. And so we leave. Uh, I make the decision to leave. And it was a few weeks later that our, our world got flipped upside down, okay? So uh, my wife and I will be celebrating 23 years of marriage this, this year in July. Um, so another example of how a broken man who does not deserve a woman like my wife, I mean, God placed her in front of me 25 years ago, and I had no idea the blessing that was bestowed upon me at that point in time, right? And for a long time, took it for granted, right? 
um, did not value the relationship the way that I needed to, and no, no, no scandal, right? No, no crazy things, just in day-to-day interactions, right? Just in um, the, the way I mentally would respond to her, the way I physically would respond to her, right? Um, my ability to be giving of my time and my effort and, and all of those, those things. So I'm very thankful, and the conversation she and I recently had was, you know, I don't get to be this version of me without her. And, and so, you know, um, a lot of what happens up here is because of the grace that, and love she has extended to me and how she has just continued to love me when I have made it incredibly challenging for her to do that at times. And she might tell you different, or she might tell you, yeah, it was really hard, okay? No, no, you're incredibly <laughs> <laughs> And can I get an amen on that? Yes, absolutely, okay? Um, and that's, we can, you know, that's, that's a whole nother talk about relationships and, and uh, the work and effort that go into that. But so uh, very thankful for that. We've got two young men uh, that are boys, 21 and 19, getting ready to be 22 and 19. And um, a lot of times uh, I just, I stop and I just think uh, a, a broken boy from Bloomington, from Ellisville, Indiana, should not be blessed the way that I'm blessed. And I am. And it's a, it's a testament to God. But so our family is, is rooted here and, and we're good and, and okay. All right. Hey, I think we've kind of made this page. This, uh, we've made this declaration. We're going we're gonna to try this new chapter of life and see what it looks like me not teaching at Edgewood High School or being involved in that, that school anymore. And so um, leading up to that, so my wife was, and I don't want to share too much of her story, but was diagnosed in late August with breast cancer of uh, the, the previous year, of 2021, okay? And so uh, was caught very early, thankfully. Um, let me take this time to PSA. Do your checkups. Go to the doctor. We, I know we don't like it. I know we don't like being poked and prodded, and we don't like having doctors tell us we need to lose weight or we shouldn't be doing that or you shouldn't smoke or you shouldn't drink this or you shouldn't eat that. Go get checked, okay? If she doesn't go and get that check, then maybe we're telling a much different story now than the one that we're telling, okay? So, and I know for a fact, I shared this with the buddy about two weeks after we found out, and he said, man, I'm really glad that you're telling me this. I'm really sad that you're telling me this, but I'm glad that you're telling me this because I've been fighting with my wife for the last month. She won't go get her checkup. And I start crying on the phone, and I say, brother, you you got to go, man. You, you have to go. And he says, it's done. He said, I'm not going to take no for an answer, right? So there's the PSA on that. Go get your checkups, um, you know, boys and girls alike. It's important. And, and there's people here that want you to get those checkups. So she was diagnosed early. We caught it very early. I won't even begin to explain the trials and the tribulations that we went through through her process. Diagnosed late August. Uh, surgery possibly in October, and then it gets moved to November, and then it gets moved to December. Yes, ma'am. And then we find ourselves in January, and they still have not addressed these issues that she has with her breast cancer. Okay, so all the while, life is still going on. We're still trying to navigate, figure out what is happening, and why are we being put through this, and and how are we going to come out of it? She was stoic throughout the whole thing. She's an incredibly strong woman and, and very uh, bullheaded at times, which is an absolute blessing. And so we get to January and we feel like we have a plan, okay? Uh, it ended up meaning that we had to throw everything that we had done up to that point out the window and start over brand new, but she was brave enough to do that. And when we got linked up with Community South up in Indianapolis, uh, it took my wife's experience with her cancer into a completely different trajectory um, that just really helped us deal with and handle, the, handle that. And uh, so Community South, if, if, and we will share our story, as much of it as, as you would like to hear. If you have questions, if you have issues, if, if you know somebody that's going through something like that, I cannot recommend Community South enough. Uh, they are 
phenomenal people. I think the thing that I appreciated most about them is that for the first time in this process, my wife felt like somebody was listening to her. And they not only listened, but they made her, they allowed her to feel like a woman through that process and not just a number. And so as a husband, we want to fix and we want to solve and we want to help. And, and I tried really hard. I was intentful to let her process and handle and do her thing. And if we asked questions and she said, this is what we're going to do, that's what we did. And, and because it's her journey and her experience and I just get to be a part of it. Um, but when we got up there, it changed everything. And so by the time that we got to January and that whole situation, we really felt like, oh, okay, all right. We've, we have been thrown this huge obstacle. We have developed the plan and we are now going to go, you know, try to um, make that, execute that plan. And then, you know, a month later, we decided I need to leave my environment. I need to get out of that school. I need to get into something different and go from there. And then when March hit, so March 2nd, uh, so I'm, I'm going through some things in February. My doctor thinks that maybe I've got pneumonia. Um, I basically get to the point, y'all, where um, I'm carrying a, a bottle around like this with me because, um, and I, I don't want to be too grotesque here, but I'm coughing up blood, okay? And to the point to where I would fill one of these bottles up every day by coughing up blood, okay? And it started with, uh, I noticed a little blood in the shower. I get out, and, and again, we're prideful. We're men, right? We're tough and strong and big. And I say, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of weird. It didn't seem right. Said, hey, you need to get that checked. I call the doctor, so we do all those things. And through this process, he says, yeah, I think you're battling a, a, a strong bout of pneumonia. You know, we've been dealing with her stuff now for a few months. I've got my own drama and trauma going on in my work environment. There's a lot happening. And yeah, that's probably what it is, you know. And um, so go in, they come back, I say, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, we're not convinced that that's pneumonia. So we wanna go ahead and do a couple other things, okay? So now at this point, keep in mind, I've lost about 20 or 30 pounds. To give you a little insight, uh, I usually, well, I say usually, I had for many years, I walk around usually around 260 pounds, um, 265 pounds. Uh, I've always been an athlete, um, have always, not always, but I've been a coach. I love the weight room. I love to clang and bang weights and um, I love to be physical. And so, I don't know, big 56 inch chest and uh, love to push weights and, and like I said, 265 pounds, okay, right now, uh, I'll tell you I'm 200. My wife likes to remind me that I'm not. She's like, you're like 198, babe. Okay. <clears throat> to me, I round up, that's it's absolutely 200, okay? Uh, but 200 pounds. So it's, uh, you know, here's things I'm insecure about. I don't have a butt. Like, my back <laughs> just goes, like, I squat, I promise. I don't know where, but anyway. Um, those are discussions I have too. I'm like, really? Like, no butt? I don't, I don't know. Um, well, I just bought shorts that are a size 36. And I, like, I, <laughs> I don't buy 36 size pants, okay? Um, probably not since my freshman year of, of uh, high school. Um, so I walk around a lot skinnier now than I was. Uh, but we're, we're, we were, I'm big and, and I'm not eating, I'm having issues, um, I'm having trouble sleeping now, and we're just really trying to figure out what's going on, and, and they said, we, we need to take another look at this. So we, we're gonna, we need to do a biopsy. You've got some spots, we wanna check them out. And um, the, <clears throat> forgive me, one of the, uh, I'm on, a lot of different pills and supplements right now, and it, one of the things I get is cotton mouth really bad, which is annoying, especially when you're trying to talk. But uh, so uh, we go through the biopsy, and along this point, my doctor had called us on a Sunday night, which I'm sure most of you can put that together. If your doctor's calling you at home on a Sunday night, 
So he calls, and I'm like, uh, okay. Hey, what's up? He says, hey, man, uh, it's not good. And, you know, we think possibly this is maybe a cancer and it might be lymphoma. Okay. All right. So, you know, we're sitting and we're listening and we're, we're talking and we hang up the phone. And I think the first thing she says is like, you're a jerk. Like, I hate you. What are you doing? You know, um, what are you doing getting cancer? Like, I know. Um, but so we, we, we talk and we process. Okay. So immediately, right, you start Googling. Uh, what we call GT, uh, GTS, Google that stuff, right? And uh, so we start Googling, oh, what's lymphoma? Okay, I mean, we've heard of it, but we don't know what it is. And, and so, you know, in that night, we start to kind of mentally prepare ourselves for this lymphoma diagnosis. And, you know, by all accounts, lymphoma is uh, 70 to 80% treatable. And, you know, there's all these different things that can happen and go along with it. And so you never like to get hit with the cancer word. But we thought, huh, okay, this, you know, seems manageable. It seems like it's treatable. Okay, let, let's, let's take that and, and let's go. And so uh, a few days later, we have the biopsy. And on March 2nd, we're sitting around the house. And so she is now, at this point, had her surgery. Okay, um, so her surgery went very well. Uh, her doctors confirmed that they were able to get all of the cancer, and my wife is declared cancer-free. Okay, amen. amen to that. Absolutely. And, and she does not like that attention, um, but she and I have talked a long time about just how amazing that is and how strong she has been throughout this whole process, and, and she will be very stoic and uh, will we'll kind of dismiss it all, but it's a beautiful thing and incredibly blessed to have that diagnosis. But um, so I'm battling my thing. She's coming through the tail end of her thing. And uh, so she's at home recovering. I'm at home because literally at this point, I can't travel anywhere without my blood bottle. And I'm really still struggling to eat, to walk. Uh, I mean, if you talk to some of our friends and family, they will tell you that I walked around for a couple weeks, kind of in this gray state where my skin didn't look right. And um, you could just tell things were not okay. And so on March 2nd, um, our pulmonologist calls and he says, and you know, it's one of those where when you know, you know. And I, so he calls, hey, what's up, doc? And it's just silent. And he says, uh, you know, hey, Michael, hey, Mr. Dorn. Um, he says, I, I, I I don't have good news. Okay, well, hey, it's good to talk to you too. It's nice to nice to hear your voice. I say, okay, well, hold on. Let me uh, let me go. Let me get with Sarah real quick. So, okay, go ahead, man. What, what's going on? And uh, you could hear his voice was shaking. It was trembling. Um, you could tell he was sad. I think in the small amount of time that he and I had spent together, he, he could tell that we're pretty uh, vicarious and, and we're positive. And, you know, uh, I have a joy for life, man. I have a joy for humans. I have a joy for other people. And he said, I, I don't even know how to begin. He said, but you've been diagnosed with lung cancer. Okay, now. Keep in mind, I, I was a smoker for years, uh, many years ago, uh, back when I was in the restaurant world. I, I did smoke for a few years, and so I thought, well, okay. And he said, to be real honest with you, um, it's lung cancer, and you've got this other little thing going on. Okay, well, what's this other little thing? He says, well, it's, it's called a nut midline carcinoma. And we're like, what? Like, did I hear you right? What does that even mean? And uh, he said, you know, this is out of my, this is out of my, my realm. He said, I, I, I'm not a cancer doctor. Uh, I'm, and I'm more of a heart guy than I am a lung guy. And this is a lung thing. And we need to get you connected with somebody that can help. And uh, so, again, immediately we, you know, I think my 
She was mad at me when they said lymphoma. Boy, you should have seen her when they said lung cancer, nut midline carcinoma. She was really mad. Um, and, and she says, you know, okay, what do we do? What are we going to do? So, of course, we GTS. We start Googling that stuff. And what we find out is that this nut midline carcinoma um, typically affects about 30 to 40 people a year in the world. Okay, yeah, oh no, yeah, yeah, that was close to what I said. It was a little different, <laughs> modified. I, I am a broken, a broken human for sure. I, I, I am not where I ultimately would like to be. But so we have some comments and some words, and we so 20 to 30 people diagnosed a year with this disease. Most of the time, those people fall into the range of 16 to 23 years old. So how does a 43-year-old old guy get this disease? And as we progress and we talk over time, we find out, you know, our uh, cancer doctor up in Simon Cancer Center, um, you know, says, hey, this is, this is all genetic. This was nothing that you did. Uh, it's not because you smoked. It's not because you didn't smoke. It's not because you drank this or didn't drink that or ate this. He said you had two genes in your body that are never supposed to connect. And for whatever reason, they've connected. And they have just basically started being crazy. And they are reproducing incredibly fast. And they are overtaking your body. And it's not good. Uh, okay. So immediately, I, that day that we get the phone call on March 2nd, we process for a few minutes and we walk from the bedroom back to the living room. And last year at this time, we were getting ready to celebrate our 22nd year of marriage. And I just look at her and I say, well, like if this is where we're at, like, I'm really, really thankful for you. And I'm really it's been a good ride, babe. Like, I am blessed. And of course, she like slaps me. She's like, Psh. knock it off. What are you doing? What are you talking about? Okay, but in that moment, I was, I was lost. Like, I really thought, huh, okay. 43 years of, uh, and I'm telling you, I'm broken, y'all. But trying to do the right thing. And trying to lead and trying to be a good dad and a good husband and a mentor and a good brother and a good uncle and all those other things. And, and wow, okay, like, I'm going to be one of those guys. They're going to probably make some shirts and probably have a ribbon and they'll have some ceremony about me when I die. Okay. And uh, so even in that moment, she was incredibly strong. And she said, knock it off, you know, essentially shut up. Mama didn't raise a punk. Let's go. And, and let's go. And so we did. We had, a, we had a moment that day and we kind of licked our wounds. And um, by the, the next day, my wife has a follow-up after her surgery. And so we drive up to Indianapolis to see her surgeon and her medical team. And, you know, by all accounts, my wife is rolling. Uh, her surgery has gone very well. And um, God has delivered us through that whole process. She's feeling good. She's getting ready to go back to work. Her incisions and her wounds are healing. And we've had really minimal side, uh, minimal side effects from all of that. And so, you know, going up, it's like, this should be a great visit. Uh, nobody really knows that on the other side of that, what we're dealing with. And so she's holding it together as we're checking in and, well, the first nurse comes in and checks us out. And, oh, my gosh, you look great. You look wonderful. And things are healing well. And, you know, we got all the cancer. And she's like, yep, yep, yep. And by the time the doc gets in, uh, Mrs. Lodick, Dr. Lodick gets in, she just can't hold it anymore. And so she walks in and she's like, oh, the, the nurse told me everything looks great. And, let, you know, we're going to I'm going to take a look myself. But, wow, oh, this is wonderful. And she just loses it and just starts bawling. And, you know, imagine you know, the doctor is thinking, hey, we've done something great here. We've gotten rid of the cancer. We've, you know, she's 
whole and she feels healthy and she's good. And why is this woman bawling in front of me right now? Like, what is going on? And so we share with her at that time, you know, hey, we just got this diagnosis, blah, blah, blah. And so immediately she makes a phone call. Hey, I need to, you know, can we connect these people with somebody that we know? And um, she refers us to IU Simon Cancer Center. Okay. Now, I had already started some of my own research the previous night, had IU Simon Cancer Center. I had this one particular doctor in mind based on the prognosis that we had been given and or the diagnosis that we had been given. And that is who she gives us the number to. Okay, so like in that moment, we're less than 24 hours in and there's already a movement of God in our life in that the research we had started to do matches up with somebody else that has no, has no idea what we've been doing. And here we are connecting these pieces, right? So we're driving back and I'm like, ah, this is it. This is where we need to go. We need to call this guy. So I call immediately. And that starts that whole process. Um, so by March 9th, we meet with the doctor. And by March 11th, I am sitting in a chemo chair, having them pump poison into my body, okay? And, and I will talk to you at length, not today, uh, but about chemo and the American medical system and just how flawed and broken it is. Um, I think doctors, a lot like police officers when we're young, we're just told that we're supposed to respect them and listen to them, and that is true. Um, but sometimes doctors are not always, um, doctors are looking out for their license and their degree. If anybody's a doctor, I mean no disrespect. I, I'm very thankful for the doctors. We, we, we've had fantastic care through both of our cancer journeys. But I've also heard from people because of this journey that have been absolutely ransacked by the medical community. And, and what chemo does to your body, how it affects your body, and how we think that anybody can get better when we're dumping poison into them is beyond me. But literally nine days later, we're sitting in a chemo chair and I'm getting pumped full of three variations of chemotherapy as well as one immunotherapy, okay? And so I had a brother at the time. I have lots of brothers and lots of sisters. Um, I, I mean, in theory, I don't. I'm an only child, uh, but I've had two stepbrothers from the time I was seven years old and they are my brothers. And then people like Austin and Mr. Carson, Jeff, and young humans that I see here are my brothers and my sisters. And so um, we are um, go. I kind of lost sight there a little bit, but we're going through this. We're in the chemo chair. One of my brothers uh, from the very beginning says to me, bro, I'm going to encourage you with this verse, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. Okay. And so that became a rallying cry for me. Uh, and actually, he, uh, he, he provided me a, a little uh, locket that I keep in my pocket. And um, somebody provided me a prayer cloth that I keep in my pocket. Uh, that goes with me every day, everywhere. Um, so I'm just thinking throughout this whole process, be strong, be courageous. We get up there for chemo. Um, long story short, I'm allergic to one of the chemo, one of the preservatives that goes into the chemo drug. Um, so, you know, we're up there for about an hour. They say, hey, we're going to give you some anti-nausea medicine. Then we're going to give you some steroids. And I'm like, this is awesome. Okay, I'm in. Cool. I'm like, do you think I'll be able to, like, lift stuff really heavily? And she's like, babe, you're an idiot. Please knock it off. Um, and so, you know, we take the anti-nausea medicine. Okay, cool. Uh, we take the steroids. I'm like, huh? this is not bad at all. And um, we, they, they actually get ready to administer a second anti-nausea medicine. And uh, we haven't even made it to the chemo yet. And uh, I, I look at Sarah and I'm like, Something, something's not right, babe. I don't feel good. And it's really hot in here and then I black out, okay? And um, they pull me back. Uh, so I go into anaphylactic shock, okay? So um, they say, okay, hey, that's just one of the 
anti-medicine drugs, so it's okay if you don't take it. I'm like, well, if you're trying to give this to me because you think it's going to help me not be as sick, and now you're telling me I don't need it, which is fine. You're just saying like, okay, well, you're really going to be sick, right, uh, when, when, when these drugs hit you. And so um, they get me leveled back out. They give us about 10 or 15 minutes to kind of uh, allow vitals and everything. They come back. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, well, we're going to go ahead and proceed now with the chemotherapy. Okay, cool. And I promise you, I'm sitting there rubbing that little charm, and I'm just saying, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Right? When we delivered the news to our sons, <laughs> I told my sons right then, like, the way I look at this is we have two choices. I'm either going to be a punk and I'm just going to quit or I'm going to fight. And I owe your mom 30 more years of marriage and I owe you guys to be around as long as I can. So I'm going to fight. And so I just keep thinking that in my brain, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Do not fear. I'm going to fight. I owe this woman 30 more years. I owe those young men at least like weddings. And, you know, at that time, our, uh, our youngest son hadn't even graduated high school yet. He's got a baseball season I'm looking forward to. Like, there's all these things. And so I'm just rubbing that charm, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. They administer the first round of chemotherapy, carboplatin, I think it was, I can't remember. And, uh, and the same thing happens again. I, they, we get about 15 seconds in and I can just start feeling the heat. And I tell, I look, I, mama, I, I don't feel good. And she says, okay, stands up and by the time she stands up I'm unconscious again and back in anaphylactic shock and um, the nurses come running over and and uh, it's a big ordeal okay at this point in time I think we've had almost 40 treatments up at that hospital in the 40 days that we've been up there for those treatments we've never seen anybody go through what we went through that day that's how infrequently it happens and so they get us calmed back down, vitals come back in line. She comes back after about 10 or 15 minutes. And at this point, I'm a little shook. I'm a little shook. My, uh, I've always been pretty prideful, which I try to not be very much of that now. I've always taken a lot of um, encouragement in my strength and my size and the ability to be strong. And I'm looking at her and I'm questioning just how strong am I? And, you know, we're there and okay. So our nurse comes back and she says, listen, <laughs> we're really sorry. <laughs> that is not how we wanted any of this to go. I've talked to your doctor. This medicine is made specifically for you. It costs a lot of money. And if you don't use it, it goes to waste. And so he really wants you to try a third time. Okay. And so, and anaphylactic shock. And I mean, I'm probably underselling that a little bit. It was kind of cool. I will say the first time was kind of neat. Um, I, it, it was like giant laser beams coming out of every pore in my body. I mean, it was, it was really kind of cool. I mean, minus the whole anaphylactic shock part, right? Um, but there's literally just laser beams coming out of every pore, soul. Uh, and, and it's the second time it happened. Um, they were like little fireworks inside my eyes. So anywhere that I looked, there were just exploding fire. I mean, again, it was a, <laughs> it was a very cool show. Um, I didn't appreciate the means in which it took us to get there. Um, but so now you're telling me that you want me to try a third time something that we know has failed twice. And so I just, I'm rubbing that charm and I'm just thinking, be strong and courageous. And this third time in particular, I'm like, huh. I told my boys I was going to fight. And so how can I sit in this chair and say I don't want to do that when the doctors are telling me this is how I'm going to get better and then go home and tell them that I, I wanted to fight? So I just said, okay, all right, we'll go a third time. And, of course, they... 
they increased the time, they, they decreased the dose so that I wouldn't be giving as much. And she said, so now instead of this one particular treatment taking two hours, it's going to take four hours for that infusion to happen. But your body hopefully will be able to handle it because it's in the lower dosage. Okay, cool. All right, fine. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear. And, and so, okay, let's go. So she sets it up and we get going with the third time and Thankfully, it was not nearly as dramatic as the first two um, because it was kind of dummied down, if you will. Uh, but I looked at her at one point. I said, well, okay. I'm hot, but I'm okay. I said, give me a bag. I think I might need to throw up, um, which in and itself, the fact that they're administering things to us that are causing us to throw up, but that's supposed to fix this. Oh, again, I, it's, a, it's another tangent that I could go on. Um, but it ends up happening a third time, okay? So I, I, at this point, it was not as drastic because the dosage had been calmed down. But I break out into sweats. My heart rate accelerates to like 170 beats per minute. My, my breathing starts to accelerate, and I'm literally just dumping sweat onto the floor. And so they shut everything down. And um, by the time that we get settled, you know, she says, listen, we're, we're done. We're not, we're not going to administer any other drugs today. Well, I think we ended up, we ended up did taking the immunotherapy that day, which in hindsight is no coincidence. So they do administer the immunotherapy. The immunotherapy goes wonderfully. It, it goes well. But at one point I'm looking, and we're kind of just processing, and what has happened? Like we've been up here for three hours. I've been given basically an antibiotic and a steroid, I have failed at receiving any of the chemo drugs that I'm supposed to receive. And I look at, <laughs> I look at her and I say, the drugs that are supposed to fix me, I'm allergic to. So now what? Like if chemo is our only hope and now I'm allergic to it, And of course, you're like, shut up, you big dummy. Just, it's okay. Relax. So we get through the day. We go home. And, um, you know, at that point, we're trying to figure out what does this look like? Do they offer the, the, the chemo uh, without the preservative? What we find out is I'm allergic to the preservative. And my wife will tell you I'm a freak. She, she's, of course, of course you get this nut midline carcinoma that only affects 30 people a year. It only affects usually 16 to 23-year-olds, and you're an old guy for it, and of course. And she says, of course you're allergic to the preservative and the chemo. Why not? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, but we do find out that they offer uh, this chemo without the preservative in it, but it, it, there's some other hoops that we have to jump through, but we do find out that, okay, we, we have a plan and we can move forward, okay? So we go through uh, 21 treatments of, hello, chemotherapy, specific chemotherapy. Uh, I'm still doing immunotherapy um, every three weeks. Immunotherapy is so much nicer on your body. It, um, your body tolerates and handles, and the immunotherapy is actually a very good thing. It's teaching your immune system how to fight the cancer that you have. So the immunotherapy has been very good for us. And, uh, but, so we go through this process. We start the process of, okay, here we are. So it's not long after, I continue to lose some weight. Um, I remember one day sitting in my chair um, and just kind of looking down at myself and you know, the bulk, the mass is gone. There's not really any definition in my arms, and I'm looking down at my legs, and I'm like, I'm a dead man walking. I'm a dead man walking. For years, I've prided myself on being the big guy and giving big hugs and being strong and doing this and doing that, and I'm just like, I'm bones. I'm bones. I have no muscle. At that point, it was about the best I could do to get up and walk out to our garden. 
it was a great way for her and I to spend 10 minutes together, like outside of the house. But after about 10 or 15 minutes, I needed to go back in. I was exhausted. I was tired. And uh, it really sucked. Chemo sucks. And um, I'm really thankful I got to go through it because had I not, it would not have pushed me to build and forge my relationship back with God the way that I am now. But in that moment, it was really tough. And I'm never a man or a guy who would contemplate suicide. But when you have so many dark days in a row and one of the worst things I could do was read facts because if you start to look at some of the data and some of the reports that they have on this disease and its progression the facts will tell you that I'm dead the facts will tell you that after seven months I'm supposed to no longer be here. The facts will tell you that less than 20% of people make it to the two-year mark. The facts will tell you that most people, it happens very quickly. My doctor said when those two genes got together, it was like they took a brick and put it down on the accelerator. And just they were just rolling inside my body. And so I'm sitting there one day and you're trying to do some investigation to find out about your disease, to how best prepare and fight. And so you get stuck reading and these trials and this data. And sometimes as she would call it, as Sarah would call it, I would get lost down the rabbit hole in information and in facts. And what I've learned since then is that there's facts and then there's truth. God delivers truth. Humans deliver facts. Okay? So, um, I never contemplated suicide, but I remember telling her, I can understand how people would consider that. It makes sense to me now. Because it's no way to live. So, we get to June, or we're working up to June, and at this point, I'm not working. Um, you know, our community has been incredibly strong and in, in the prayers that have been offered from here. Um, I, <laughs> undeserving of the support that we've received. Uh, it's very humbling. It's very, very humbling. The amount of people, the support that was shown from our community, from people I knew, from people I didn't know, and um, to get us to where we got. But I started doing some of my own therapy. Um, so I started doing some stuff outside, trying to reconnect with the earth, trying to reconnect with God, trying to make sure that I gave praises every morning and started speaking, right? I think it's Proverbs, and I'm still an adolescent here in my journey, so I can't give you the verse. Um, but in Proverbs, it says, your tongue has power of life and death, of good and evil. So I'm speaking positivity. I'm speaking life. I'm telling the cancer it's not welcome. I'm telling the cancer it is not, does not have authority over my body. I'm telling my body that Jesus has authority. And these are things that I'm literally repeating day after day, hour after hour to myself. Did I believe it every time I said it? No. But I needed to say it, and I kept saying it. So I, I kept saying it. And I was, I was not born or raised in a church, but I was. My parents divorced when I was six. Uh, my mom's always been very spiritual, but she doesn't ever go to church. Um, my dad and my stepmother uh, have always taken us to church, but they're not very spiritual. Okay? And I, there's no right or wrong. That's just, that's where we were. Um, so I always knew every other Sunday I'd have to go to church. Ah, i got to go to church. Got to go to confirmation. Okay. So I've been raised in a church. I know church. And um, I, I, I feel comfortable with, I know who God is. Sleepwalking. Okay. 
And so as I'm starting to do these daily practices and these morning routines and starting to change and I've had some books delivered and now I'm, tr I'm trying to read every day a little bit and um, I'm talking and I, I shared this with Sarah, but I shared this with one of my buddies. I said, um, here's where I'm at. He, he, he stops over one day, takes me for a ride in his truck. He says, let's just go, man. Let's just go. Let, I'm, we're just going to go cruise around. Cool. And he says, how are you? And he says, don't, don't tell me you're fine. How are you? And so I, you know, I, I talk to him. I say, here's where I'm at, brother. And this is probably April or May. I say, this is my worst case scenario. My worst case scenario is I die and I go to heaven and I'm there for eternity. Amen. And he's like, he's waiting. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. I'm like, but I've got three humans here that I absolutely adore. And I don't want to leave them. So that's my worst case scenario. I get to go to heaven. I believe in Jesus Christ. I know the healing that he has and that he offers. I believe in him, but I leave them behind. And that's horrible. And he says, yeah, I hear that. So imagine that being your worst case scenario. <laughs> it's a pretty good worst case scenario. Nice. Thank you. I like that. That's good note, too. Wrapping up, keep me in check. Because, listen, I'll keep going. I mean, he is moving through me right now. I'll keep talking. So, um, you might be playing for a while. I'm just letting you know. Okay. But I ask, um, so that conversation leads to me, him, to, to me telling him, I know God can heal, but will he? I said, like, because I've heard the stories. I've seen miracles happen. I've heard from other people that miracles happen, and I believe it. And I believe in that faith, and I'm convicted by that. But will he heal me? And I'm reminded of the uh, trip that Jesus has taken, and he comes across, well, the unclean lady. And I can't remember her name, but, right, she had bled for years, I believe, right? And she was considered unclean and unholy. And nobody would talk to her. Nobody would touch her. And she so believed in the power of Jesus that she said, if I can just run my hand across his cloak, I know I'll be healed. And I shared that with him. I said, I know that's how Jesus works. I said, if he were to show up at a, at a square somewhere, I don't need to be front and center. I will walk by that man and just rub his cloak. And he's like, yeah. I said, so I know he can, but will he heal me? And so that became the question I asked in my pasture for like the next six weeks. And I'm out there and I'm walking. I'm all in tune. My socks and my shoes are off. And I'm walking and I'm trying to be healthy. And I'm talking, boy. And I'm giving him the business. I'm letting him know, like, I love you. But really? I'm 43. <laughs> I got a, a wife two kids. There's other young humans I'm supposed to impact. I'm, I'm supposed to see my kids get married. I'm supposed to, I owe my wife 50 years at least. Really? Really? This is what we're doing? We just keep walking. We just keep walking day after day. I'm talking with my buddy JT one night and I share that same story and I say, I know we can bro, but will he? And he's like, I don't know, man. That's, that's heavy. I want you to find somebody to talk to. So we talk. And long story short, well, really long story long because I'm not done, but on June uh, the 7th, I have a gentleman reach out to me and I referred to him as the stranger. And I didn't know him. He reached out to me on Facebook and this is how you know we weren't really even friends is we weren't Facebook friends, okay? Like, right? Like, I consider myself very blessed. I have a lot of people that I care about and that care about me in my life. And so I have a lot of friends, okay? 
but we all have friends that were like, I don't even know this person. Like, but I've got 2,000 friends on Facebook. Woo! Okay. This dude was not even one of my friends on Facebook. Okay. So he reaches out to me. He says, I don't know what's going on. God has placed you on my heart. I need to come talk to you. Are you open for a visit? Absolutely. So two days later, he shows up at my door. We sit. He and his brother show up. His name is Andy. His brother's name is Marcus. They show up at my door. And he says, you have been placed in my prayers. And I'm supposed to come tell you that Jesus is listening to you. And you need to claim your healing now. So, you know about the talks in the pasture? How do you know about the talks in the pasture? I'm just telling you, God sent me here to talk to you today. To let you know that he's listening. And it's up to you to claim it. The healing is there for you. You have to claim it. You have to believe it. You have to speak it. And you get that's where it's at. And I remember looking at him and I said, so you're telling me all I got to do is claim it? And he's like, yes. And I said, well, then I claim it. I claim it. Jesus is healing. It's going to happen. Absolutely. Amen. And we talked for a few more minutes. And now at this point, and then they leave. At this point in time, y'all, I mean, I was surviving on protein shakes. I was not able to eat. Um, anytime that I ate, it led to regurgitation and it led to problems and it led to issues. And so we had protein shakes that I was able to consume and I could consume three or four of those a day. And, and that would be the extent. If I could get four protein shakes a day, that was a good day for us. And two days later, I ate a meal. And within the following week, it's amazing what seven days can do. By the end of that next seven days, I was eating two or three meals a day. And it started with the belief and the claiming of the healing that was there. Okay. And so for a long time, as I was in the schools and I was leading upward and as I was doing all these different things, being given opportunities to talk and share, I was sleepwalking y'all. Okay. I was just going through motions. Yeah. I believe in God. Yeah. He's cool. He's all right. And yeah, this and yeah, that. And yeah, I'm going to share my message and talk about it. And I'll say a prayer with you guys. But what am I doing in my day-to-day to build that relationship? What am I doing in my hour-to-hour to build that relationship with Christ? And what the stranger taught me or what he helped me understand was it's there. We have to claim it. We have to work at it. We have to put effort towards it. We have to want to work at it. And just because we're working at it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But it's going to happen. And it's got to start here with the belief. And it's got to start here with the belief. And it's got to start inside with the belief. It's got to start with you claiming what you want to happen. It's got to start with the manifestation of what you want to happen. So I had faith all along that God could do it, and he can. But I wasn't giving him the power. I wasn't claiming it that it's already done. I was still questioning him, right? Worry is a form of unbelief, right? I still had a bunch of worry. So... I'll wrap up because she's been playing for four minutes. Her fingers are getting tired. My wife has already given me the side eye twice. Like, babe, let's go. Okay. So I got to go. But so spiritually asleep is what I felt like I was for a long time. Spiritually asleep. Believer, follower, kind of, most of the time, sometimes. But not a billboard. And now I need to be a billboard for Christ. Now I need to share and express. I need to share in my I need to be boastful in my weakness. Because if I'm boastful in my weakness and I come through that, that's a testament to his strength, not mine. Okay? And that's what you're seeing here is a man that is strengthened through Christ. Because if I do this on my own, I've probably probably gave up in the chemo chair when she said you're going to do the third round I probably gave up that day in my recliner when I was in the rabbit hole but I did okay so maybe this is your stranger moment 
Maybe you needed me to come tell you to claim whatever you need to claim in your world right now, in your life. Is there something you want or that you're going after or that you're trying to make happen? Claim it, speak it, believe it. Give him thanks for it now, even if it's not done. Give him the praise for it now and watch what happens. Watch what happens. My worst case scenario means I get to go spend eternity with Jesus Christ and then wait on these three young humans to come join with me. Okay, that's my worst case scenario. I'll take that all day long. Okay, so maybe I'm your stranger. Maybe you've been sleepwalking. Maybe you've been spiritually asleep. And maybe this is your message to wake up and to take some ownership in that relationship and to work on that relationship and to build that relationship. Okay, the healing is there for you. You got to claim it. We got to start there. Okay. I appreciate your background music. 